0: This is a Manips and Sips podcast featuring uh, Dr. Brandon Cruz and Dr. Jeremy Boyd. That's me. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, kind of movement patterns and whether something is acceptable um, or is detrimental to a, a client. Client, um, There's a lot of talks and maybe some publicity or popularity with, you know, everything all movements are okay or is what the patient or client can do uh and that's bringing up some debate and we figured we shoot the shit today and kind of bring our opinions on it um as two people who very critiquing of and of uh, form and everything uh but on that topic uh, I'll pass it off to Brandon and then we'll talk about our, our sips or lack of sips.
1: Hey Jay, what's going on hey, hey everybody uh yeah so today I know, Jerry, this is something you, you kind of had brought up and, and wanted to talk about. So I'm actually currently in the, in the middle of my work workday. Uh, so I don't actually have a drink because I got to go back to – so I'm not going to be drinking in between. So I uh, don't have a drink today, but, Jerry, you're going to have to be picking up the slack for uh, for me as well and drink overtime or drink double duty here. So what do you have? on top? It's,
0: it's actually good timing because I actually pulled out the biggest glass of my uh, – of my cabinet here because I get a, I get a glass for every brewery that I go to. So that's from Lucky Hair Brewing. It's a, it's a big boy. So I got you. The beer I'm drinking today is um, it's called Hakuna Matata. This is from uh, I've probably pulled them out a couple times from uh, Bonesaw Brewery. Is a uh, pineapple puree um, uh, IPA. It's got that kind of milkshake-y look to it. Uh, delicious. I actually have a uh keg of air full of it. Um just yeah, couldn't pass it up. The wife liked it too, so that's why we got to bring it home with us. So
1: nice. uh, pineapple uh, what's it called? Pineapple what?
0: It's a yeah, it got like a pineapple puree to it. Nice. Um just summery. Uh, yeah, it's very summery be beach. Okay. Uh seven point five percent. So not only is this a big boy, but it's got it packs a little mini punch a little, to it, a so hefty. Yeah, we'll see how the rest of this podcast goes. So I might be picking up on the alcohol, but you might have to pick up on the combo. All right. Um, but um, we can yeah, um, speaking of like picking up things or picking up on movement patterns and those sort of things. Um, Brand, what's your kind of, you know, insight on this? It's becoming an increasingly popular thing. I've seen it on Instagram a lot. I've talk to some, you know, I have a resident who's who's mentioned things here or there about it. Um, And just even some talking to people over online and those sort of things is, you know, that apparently, according to some, that all movements, okay, you know, all types of squat forms are okay. All types of, you know, whatever form or whatever you can do for a deadlift is okay. That's, you know, it's okay for the client. We just have to build up their capacity to the style that they're doing or maybe i'm looking at that wrong but this is what i read i'll read through the captions before making assumptions um you know how is what's your opinion on that and and everything like that there brandon
1: yeah this uh you know infamous uh it depends line but i've gone through i guess through the rabbit hole and hopefully back out the other side I, I, i was very stringent in the beginning with, with movement and I talked about in a previous podcast about the movement screen and Greg Cook as uh, he was very influential uh, I guess in my development in my school years and early clinic uh, clinical years or year really um, you know taking the FMS and reading the SFMA book uh, you know reading Mike Boyle looking at movement patterns and, you know, one thing that kind of really sticks up to me now is as, as I've evolved as a clinician and provider is the squat. And with the movement, you know, the, the squatting technique in FMS or SFMAs feet forward, uh, which not everybody can do. So I used to, you know, have everyone line up that way and, you know, grade them down and follow the, the rule book of the SFMA and I did it for myself. I'd probably give myself FAI by trying to squat that way just because I'm not flexible enough or probably who knows if I have the correct, uh, you know, anti-version versus retroversion uh, in my hip to be able to squat that way. So, you know, coming out to the other side, yes, I, I allow some variability, but there has to be some boundaries. And, you know, we move into the, the CrossFit realm, and that's gone through its ups and downs as well as probably about, you know, seven to 10 years ago, everyone hated, I'm just going to say everyone hated, but a lot of people hated CrossFit, or there's a big backlash on CrossFit of, it's just like, or, you know, chaos that's going on. And, you know, people were, were bashing CrossFit, but, you know, there are some really good principles to CrossFit, but yes, can those movement patterns be cleaned up? So all these therapists that have opened up boxes uh, offices and, you know, their own clinics within boxes or the PT students that like CrossFit. Awesome. Be about CrossFit, but there needs to be some confines in there and not everybody can do everything. And that's where the ability to modify or scale or alter a movement need, needs to go. Uh, what, uh, what about you, Jerry? I know you've been gonna really going into the, the CrossFit realm and I know you have a, a pretty good niche down there with some of the CrossFit gyms in your area what's your take been on it prior to going really into business for yourself because before that I don't think you're really that big in CrossFit so you know has your uh perception of it changed uh if so how so and you know what are your thoughts on some of the movement patterns that CrossFit provides
0: um yeah so before I started my own practice if I was working out be at a gym or you know playing soccer I can't even say I really did that much after PT school, besides work out in the gym by myself, and just practice what I did. And then I moved down here, start my own place, and then decided, hey, you know, give it a shot. Uh, it was more just a business meeting, and then all of a sudden, by the end of the business meeting, I am, uh, I have hopped in on a wad. So, um, yeah, I fell in love with it, and then started seeing a lot of the clients, and that makes up a good portion of my clientele and in all honesty it may be because a lot of the people that come into my clinic come from the same box as I do um which the head coach there is a yeah you know, uh, he's a USA weightlifting, Olympic lifting champion he's like 14 time champion so I actually a lot of them have you know pretty pretty good squats for the most part and uh, if we're just purely looking at that but some things do slip through the cracks and everything like that and pretty much kinda of like yeah, I mean there is some things, especially with CrossFit or any kind of group classing, I'm seeing also in like your group hit classes or body pump classes or these again like hit classes and stuff like that where, you know, there is a lot of variability in those sort of things and I kinda of look at it, you know with things is you want that general framework of how much of what a particular movement whether it's a squat or a hinge with a deadlift or anything like that but you want to, i personally look at the client and stuff like that is listen one leg shouldn't be grossly different from the other or the impairments of that leg should be addressed before we you know have these movements downright. um so that's kind of like what i like to look for if there's differences in one side versus the other yeah there could be some variability you may need to externally rotate your hips a little bit more because what we're seeing and now with our cadaver studies of certain, you know, ethnic backgrounds have more shallow hips and may change up our squat forms is, yeah, we have to kind of adjust to that, but one leg shouldn't, you know, be massively internally rotated, one externally rotated and those sort of things. And I don't, yeah, I, I, there's just certain things where, you you see people and they're rounding their back with deadlifts and those sort of things. And there's got to be again some sort of boundaries, um, kind of keeping at least to the basic form of of at least the main principles of every lift. If we're going just particularly in lifts, um, yeah.
1: So uh, to, you kind of mentioned in deadlifts. Uh, I uh, I think well, it depends on what type of weight you're doing. I think there's supposed to be, or there's going to be, minimal rounding Mm -hmm. in in the deadlift if you're in the you know hundreds of pounds, Um, or I should let me rephrase that if you're doing a max lift because because that may be different for everyone, Mm -hmm. but there's probably gonna be some rounding. But should your body be able to tolerate it? Should your body be able to? built up i guess the resistance or i have the the tissue load that helps prevent a buttress versus versus some minimal and i want to stress that i don't want you you know completely rounding your back like a scared cat but you know is that allowed or should we be able to make a strict like your back can't move and, and I know that that's out there and you talk to, and that may even vary for different realms. You talk to a powerlifter versus a bodybuilder versus a crossfitter versus a PT. You might, you probably get a, a different answers all the way around. Yeah.
0: And I always tell people like personally and um with my, like my, my, especially cause there's so many crossfitters and the length of a water or workout of a day is for anyone who's not a crossfitter, you know, the repetition start to build up and then you are doing repetition with load is that at least want to see, you know, with it, you know, when we break down a movement and let's say it's not the best form and we alter that form and it makes a positive impact on the client. It's like, oh, wow, I now do that squat now and with you changing things for me, it doesn't hurt my knee as much. And that's kind of what I want. And I'll tell people, at least like 75% of the time during your workout, or maybe 80%, I want that to be done. I want you to build up that motor plan to be able to do that for 80%. If you get a couple of knee valguses here or there, sure, that's fine. It's going to happen even with me. I'm constantly focusing on, like, oh, I have eyes on me. Everyone's watching with the PT, the movement analyst dudes doing all the time. I'm going to screw up every time. But when it's 75% is crappy form, and maybe you get 10% or 15% good form. All that repetitive, you know, poor balance kind of movements is going to start to develop some issues and probably going to continue your pain. So that's why I tell, I try to be realistic is, yeah, you're going to, your body's variable. It can handle different stresses and loads. But if that previous movement pattern that you've been doing constantly causes you pain and we can adjust it, then I, that's what I want for most of the time. And understand that things do kind of vary, but especially during like a one rep maximum. I'm sure everyone's form is, you know, you're lifting the heaviest weight you can possibly lift. It's going it's to falter to some degree, absolutely. Uh,
1: another thing that's kind of been up for debate is the butt wink. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. What are, What are your thoughts? Because cause I studied this for a long time uh, earlier on. And I'd like to think I, I've kind of come out the other side, but maybe not. I'll share my thoughts uh, in, in a second. But, you know, you want to take us out here?
0: Yeah. So, I mean. And they definitely don't go over this in like PT school or anything like that. And I even like your basic strength and conditioning books or anything like that. So if it causes some issues or back pain or anything like that, I'll definitely try to address it. I always want to try and demonstrate, you know, you know my expertise and like lifting and everything like that is, you know, try and demonstrate, okay, I guess this is what a squat should look like. Um, you may have a butt wink try and adjust it a lot of times, sometimes it's correcting ankle mobility, that'll do it, addressing core control. Um, but that's probably of all the things that I'm like, yeah, you know what, that's not going to, as long as the other things are kind of in their right place and nothing's collapsing or going too crazy. That's probably one thing that I'm like, not a huge stickler about, I guess that's me. But again, I'll try and correct it or like, hey, try this. Um, especially when, with, especially with a like CrossFit, they say like squatting, it's ass to grass. So if you're going all the way ass to grass, I mean, you're going to your, eventually your wink. Win. Yeah. It's, yeah. In, all, in order for your butt to heal, you hit the back of your Achilles there. It's going to wink a little. So if you're restricting your depth to like, all right, you want just a parallel and you're winking before that, then yeah, there's probably some sort of, uh, deficit that probably needs to be worked on. But now when you go and ass to grass there. What about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you take if you take the skeleton, I don't know how many people have actually been able to play with uh, a lot of skeleton there, but or, or cadaver skeleton, and you flex up their hips or their femur bone, mm-hmm. um, or if you lower them down, I mean, their their pelvis has to hinge around their hips. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to drop down, and it's it's basically. I mean it's a ball and socket joint there, but your your pelvis as a whole is kinda of like a bowl that has to rock be able to rock. You know, then it kinda of, you know, the different layers have dived or dove into well, when should you butt wink? Is the butt wink okay? I think and I hope we're we're at the point where the butt wink's okay. Like you're supposed to have it, it's normal. Mm-hmm. Uh we shouldn't try and over critique everything. But then it came down to when are you supposed to have it? And I found that a lot of people, it, it was, I guess, let me preface it was saying it was supposed to be after 90 degrees. You should break parallel mm-hmm. and the people that, uh, don't have it, you know, have weak, you know, lack of doist inflection or poor motor control or, or something like that. But I would say it really comes down to, I, I see a lot of lifters. They arch their back when they load up their squat, like that's their position of stability because they don't have the core strength. You know, I guess we could argue what core strength is. They, they don't have the abdominal and glute strength uh, to maintain a, a more of a neutral spine. So they go to a defaulted hyperlordotic anterior tilt uh, chest up and out uh, loading position. So they're already started in a hyperextended position. So that initial butt winks, probably not a butt wink. It's just them coming out of extension if they're able to get far enough. Uh, without over kind of jamming themselves, so what I've had people do is just kind of start in a more neutral position, abs tight, glutes tight. All right, now begin your descent. Now you can kind of rock and, and roll whichever way your body takes you, and then we can go from there. So that, that's kind of my, been my evolution in a nutshell with, with the you know proposed butt wink.
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's that's definitely. I think that's you know, a good way to kind of approach things and you're you're, back, you're backing up with anatomy. So um yeah, I, I, I think that's even worse is the the hyperlordoticness. and most people when they do that and they're especially the heavy power lifters, that's that probably most of the time why they have back pain. It's simply because you just me just doing trying to get a hyperlordotic curve right now sitting in my chair is like oh tight already. So imagine all of a three to 500 ooh, ooh. pounds it's exactly loading that up yep yeah. but um what about some other things or other moves or anything like that brandon that you you would say you know when is it acceptable or when do we just you know say screw it this is okay for this person or is this uh, truly detrimental yeah, this... I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna kind of go beyond a little bit movement patterns and, and kind of fine tune it to a sport, baseball pitchers. Uh, okay. baseball pitchers who are asymptomatic but via MRI have pathologies that are that aren't a big deal. Um you know, and this kind of goes to the MRIs, don't don't we shouldn't put a lot of stock in MRIs. Mm-hmm. You know, because what's the – I think there's a stat. Let me see if I can pull up an article here. There's a stat that 73%, uh, you know, give or take, it's somewhere that's pretty decent, of um, of major league players that receive rotator cuff uh, surgery, I think within two years, have a re-tear.
0: Yep, and they're asymptomatic, right?
1: Yeah, and it's just like, well, how much – of what this person's doing that, you know, I I think in uh, you know, especially at PTs or even some of the the trainers out there that really try and, um, I guess, go, go textbook and and follow the book and have educated themselves and are looking at impairments and you look at normative values and, well, why is this person not within, they have too much range here, not enough here. and, And we'll go with the GERD for, just for the example, it's the easiest, you know, excessive external rotation, uh, versus limited internal rotation but that that's adaptive and mm-hmm. it's not just the bone structure that's adapting but what if those tissues you know the soft tissues the muscle the tendons are need to adapt as well or have adapted because of the the amount of force and torque and distraction forces that are placed upon those structures that well that shoulder can't be too tight or that muscle needs to have some type of increased, uh, extensibility and therefore adapts with, uh, what looks like on MRI, a tear or tendinosis or, um, you know, some of these other, uh, garbage or umbrella terms, uh, but really don't mean, don't mean much because it's normal for that sport. And, And I think clinicians, you know, to make that jump from the, the novice clinician uh, or the beginner clinician, and I'm, I'm not talking about years here. I'm talking about the way you, you treat and view things to the more seasoned or, or expert clinician it, is understanding some of these adaptations uh, or movement patterns or range of motion, whatever, whatever you're looking at. Some of them are normal and this is what has gotten that person there. Uh, yeah. So I'll start, I'll stop there before I continue on. What are your, what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah. Um and I have a guy who's a he's a kind of the powerlifting type of crossfit athlete. He's a coach and everything like that. And he played baseball I think all the way through college and there's no way with those adaptations and we know we that you know, obviously again game where external rotation, he's lost internal rotation, we kinda of look for that whole orc there. Um there's no way. Uh, and he's had some issues with his shoulder. Got some PRP, and he's doing—he's killing it. And he's—he just benched. I should look at the text message. I think it was two forty-five, um, and he said with the relative ease, like no pain or nothing. Um, but yeah, he can't obviously. I mean, there's certain positions that he can't get in, maybe like the front rack position, those sort of things. But he's able to do it perfectly fine. There's no way I can hammer home and get him into some sleeper positions and those sort of things. And what am I going to do? I'm just going to piss things off. Probably hurt him more, get more into an impingement. And then we've lost everything that we gained. So yeah, it's a perfect example of, of, of you know, the body can, can adapt to things um, and respond perfectly. Well, I think it was also on top of that. I think they did the that other study was on the, all the Toronto blue Jays at uh, baseball players and these are people without surgeries and stuff like that and they found probably similar percentages so this is without surgery that all of them had some uh, some sort of pathology into the shoulder I believe it was the Toronto Blue Jays
1: yeah this one doesn't say but the, the, I have uh I have a few here but the one I currently have up well it was published in 2013 but they did the, the MRIs I believe in the early 2000s, uh, 2000, 2010. So they looked at like 21 pitchers of the 20, some pretty interesting stats here. I'll I'll go through them. Let's see. Five, 20 of 21 pitchers had rotator cuff tendinosis among the 20 pitchers with tendinosis. 11 had rotator cuff tears Two had full rotator cuff tears with nine articular surface rotator cuff tears. Um, of these five, of these twenty-one pitchers, only five hit the injury list. Hmm. Of the five, one was on it for a prolonged, uh, prolonged time. So at the time, it was called the DL. Now it's called the IL. Um, four of them went to the fifteen-day DL, which is the shortest you can be on, and one went 60, 60 days. And they labeled it shoulder inflammation. So I mean, what's which I, I I think is good. I mean, some they're not going out there saying, oh, they have a tear. Uh, they're labeled as shoulder information and they're doing something to try and calm it down. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, reading this, it's just pretty, I guess one remarkable that these guys are are, are being able able to throw and do what they do, Mm. but two showing that, all right, maybe these things don't mean as much as we used to think they mean. You know, back in the day it was like, oh, they have X, Y, and Z, they can't throw. But now mm-hmm. it's like, well, this is probably more common in these elite level throwers than than we once thought. And mm-hmm. uh hopefully it's leading to less less of uh you know invasive procedures and just allowing you know more rehabilitative type uh medicine that, to kind of take its reins here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of which, let's say you get a client that everybody has a diagnosis or pathology, say let's say a labral tear or rotary cuff tear, um, and it's kind of fixated and is trying to alter their form or something of that nature with some sort of things or has as a result um, or like people are cautious of their back and those sort of things and they change up their styles or let's say you go high bar to low bar for like your squats. How would you – negotiate that do you just let it be do you try and present present the evidence do you try new techniques um i don't know if you've ever come across that brand but i figured you know that's something that may happen for the viewers and whatnot
1: yeah you, you kind of pepper it in uh i try not to hit them with everything all at once my big thing with those patients especially the the more uh hypervigilant ones uh, i guess for lack like of a better term is to try and create some type of buying. Can I do something either manually or positionally uh, or, you know, or some type of loading or unloading, whatever the case may be, where I get them to feel a change and that, okay, this may not, we, if we work on some things, this may not be a problem or I could clear this up. Cause if I can make them feel, you know, failure, or they probably know what failure is. If I can make them feel success, in terms of a movement pattern or what they're complaining of then that buy in's a lot easier than me just trying to talk to them and and just over educate them cuz at that point those those people are typically trying to hopefully avoid surgery and get back to where they want to be but they've probably been fed so much stuff and they don't know what to believe but if you make someone feel it I mean that that's that's usually enough for somebody to uh to at least begin to buy in what you're doing. Yeah. And and that's where I think the manual therapy is so huge. I mean, if you can find something that is able to, to mitigate pain or completely abolish it, you know, I I think you've done your job.
0: Yeah. um, I totally agree with that. Get some sort of buy in, let them know that you can certainly help them. um, And then they'll listen to wherever you you say, I get a lot of people who have been powerlifting for years or crossfitting for years or professional for years, and they've had an issue, and all of a sudden, you can change things, especially right on the spot. Uh, we had a guy who's, uh, I guess he's been crossfitting for eight or nine years, and squats were killing him. He had a patello- diagnosis with patellofemoral pain syndrome and didn't have anything really on the table or anything like that, but once we started doing squats and I was showing my students is. I'll do patella glides to the client right there. I'm holding their kneecap and playing around with it, like superior, inferior, superior, medially, medially, and just see which one would modulate his pain. And by the end of this, like, squat therapy, squat assessment, found out that shit lateral glides was the most beneficial, which I I, I always say. I'm like, oh, the usual lateral is the last one that (laughs) works. Completely eliminated his pain. And yeah. from there, like he was someone I was like, yeah oh, you know, they come and they go maybe like one or two sessions. He, it bought in and he's, 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 you know, a lifetime client. He's, he's coming consistently and everything like that. Um, so I couldn't agree more with that sort of stuff. If you can make that impact, you can, you can then start to kind of pepper in what you need to educate and kind of change their lifestyle for the better. But, um, other patterns, I guess it would be a hot one. It seems to be a hot one. Um, knee valgus there, Brandon. Um, some people, I guess a couple of years ago or anything like that, knee valgus was absolutely forbidden. Um, and now you get the kind of opposite where it's, it's a-okay. doesn't show anything, doesn't show anything for, some people suggest it doesn't have any predictive, anything for potential future ACL tears what's your thought process on if you have a client and they're demonstrating knee valgus, let's say with a
1: squat, a step up, or jumping and landing? Uh, Who's saying that this is not predictive of future knee injuries?
0: Uh, It's just some things I'm seeing on like Instagram and those sort of things. That's why I kind of brought it up. Is this
1: research or is this uh, self-proclaimed no-dolls on Instagram?
0: Yeah, I guess it's mostly, I guess, kind of self-proclaimed. They, I, mean, I can't even, like, I tried to, and they might have put up an oracle and those sort of things, but they are pulling up a, I can't even remember, but it was like 20 people um, in their study, and it was showing, you know, that wasn't predictive of injury. I'm like, that's such a small N, eh, I don't even care for the randomized controls trial. You're going to mm-hmm. need something more than that. But again, people are starting to kind of,
1: just yeah. because you have fifty
0: to a hundred thousand to five hundred thousand followers, it's like okay, we want to control valgus now, um, and I get that point is that you want to be able to control it. I kind of view as like you start to feel it, you want to be able to kind of pull, pull it back. Pull it. Yeah. Um, so I've seen that a handful of times, and again, I, I haven't seen so much. Where I was like, all right, well, I, I'm pretty sure it does suggest that. It can lead to injury. Um, my opinion, where I see people are, especially if I see people post ACL or anything like that, and even their other side, yeah, they may have not been so active, but we'll do some testing on that. And the patterns are the same, you know, of uh, the valgus with your step down test and these sort of things. So that's kind of, kind of hoping to see your insight on all that. Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, uh, I haven't seen anything where, that's supporting valgus. I, I'm still gonna go. You know, we don't we don't want it, mm-hmm. especially if it's that dynamic, like it's starting out and just completely collapsing in. Mm-hmm. Now, the only time I, I would probably be okay with it. I mean, you look at some of these uh, high level athletes. We're, we're talking professionals. Uh, you know, football or basketball. Let's use basketball, maybe even volleyball because they jump a lot. Outside hitters. If if their loading position. By stand, by by you know, just by sheer, um, I guess, mechanics or momentum or or their their jumping pattern already starts off, and I'm talking about a slight, what I guess looks like a valgus position, Mm -hmm. and then but they're able to isometrically hold that and jump out. I'd probably be more okay with something like that than somebody who's starting and then once they load that knee and femur just kinda of roll right in. That that's what I, I, I wanna steer away from. If someone's able to isometrically hold a position, if you think about it, when somebody lands, um or, or gets ready to jump, I mean their their muscles are pretty much I mean you talk about stress shortening cycle. I, I don't you know, there there's probably not a whole lot at that point of um, of impact because if you actually study somebody in game when they go to load they're usually you know i guess what's the way i can say this to make sense for uh, you know without having a picture they're kind of preloading or entering that jump position in the in a stretch already stretched position so now it's like an isometric to a concentric lift does that make sense mm-hmm. there, there's probably more tendon Loading than there is muscle eccentric loading or, or tendon lengthening on something like that than mm-hmm. there is muscle lengthening. So I, I think that would be the only um, only reason I would want or be more okay with somebody. I mean, you look at some of these people and I look at some of these NBA, like look at uh, James Harden when he shoots free throws or some of these NBA players when they shoot, uh, Kevin Durant. Now I'm going to use Kevin Durant. Dude's been in the league 10 years. His knees practically kissed before he shoots his free throw. That's just his pattern of shooting. The dude hasn't had an AC. He's barely been injured his whole life. And I'm saying it now. He has a calf injury. (laughs) But he hasn't hasn't had anything significant. And, you know, his draft status fell because he couldn't bench 135. So, uh, you know, I just think every every athlete's different. And they're going to use their levers and mechanics a little differently. But so you take your average, school girl who's playing soccer. Well, yeah, I want her to be able to to not have valgus because they're they're at increased risk already.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's certain movements like you do, like a like a curtsy lunge and stuff like that. It's gonna try and essentially force some valgus in your. I I always tell you, you're, you're trying to control. It. You're trying to keep the, you know, the femur aligned with the the ankle and the shin as much as you can. Um, but yeah, I mean, you are going to see that in certain athletes, but you know, those people, they can control it extremely well, um, compared. And, to- and
1: even though those curtsy lunges, I, I wouldn't say that's a, uh, yeah, I would say your your femur's more adducted and like you said, that controlled manner and not so much I'm starting in one position and now my legs rolling in with internal rotation, mm-hmm. a deduction, it, it's just you're in an adducted iso hole. So it, it, you know, and it's, is it really that femur that's moving or is it that hip, that pelvis ring that's moving in more of a transverse plane, making it the appearance of that adduction, you know, can't, should somebody have the variability for that ball and socket to move throughout that whole rim with, with, without uh risk of injury. Yeah. Um, just some food for thought. Just just some some uh, hopefully different lenses for people to view things at and not be so rigid. That's all. Mm-hmm.
0: And I always say just test it out. I mean, if there are issues, again, a lot with, you know, any of these movements and stuff, and it delivers them pain, you know, most of the time, If especially with knee valgus, I mean, especially with those patellofemoral pain syndromes or those, you know, medial knee um, – knee pain kind of things going on you adjust and you stop loading the inside of the knee so much more often than not at least in my clinical practice maybe i'm biased maybe i'm it's how i'm presenting it or anything like that most of the time it eliminates pain so i always say like test out and you know if you practice good form and uh, and if again my students will always hear like you know we're trying to avoid it i'll be bickering i'll make sure that you know, we have proper, you know, uh, femoral external rotation. That's something that's commonly missed, especially with squats or anything like that, or box jumps and the, these things. So it doesn't look like the knee's valgus so much, but we're missing that kind of external rotation component, those sort of things. is That might be a step that's missing. If it's bothering them, try and test it out, try and prove that technique mm-hmm. Uh, and more often than not, at least in my clinical practice, it you know, it does make an impact uh, for the client and then furthers that buy-in. It's like, all right, I have been able to box jump in years without some sort of discomfort. Or I avoid that workout when I see it. Yeah. And you can kind of change it up. And more often than not, these these type of exercises and principles and these sort of things have been around for such a long time. And these forms have been around for such a long time. With these specific guidelines for a reason, because it leads to, you know, a better distribution throughout the entire kinematic chain versus loading up one side of the knee joint or uh, mostly in the back versus the hips and those sort of things. But again, sometimes it does take some variability, you know, some people need to get a little bit more, but higher for the lift versus others, you know, see where, I always will tell my clients, all right, you should be primarily, regardless of kind of how things are, we'll have some, you know, a little bit of change in play, but you should primarily, if you should feel it in this area. It should be pain-free. And these are the target muscles that we need to work on. So if yeah. they're like there, they're doing a deadlift. I feel all on my back. Well, that's not exactly what I was aiming for. So let me tweak things um, until we can get to that point. And as long as you keep those basic guidelines.
1: yeah um, yeah uh, good great points and you know it's it's keeping guidelines but also being able to deviate you know not to contradict what you're saying but you know have the guidelines but being able to deviate from them when when, uh needing to when needed to not be afraid to Uh, i I think that's what you know it really comes down to when we're talking about that higher level clinician is and and, you know just segueing into i know you know a little bit away from moving patterns but You know, we have CPGs and CPRs and stuff like that. Great, that's a starting point. But you need to be able to know when and where to apply it and be able to deviate from it and understand who you have in front of you and combine it with some of your experience of what works and what doesn't and not maybe be so rigid into, you know, a paradigm or a set of lenses that's out there.
0: Yeah, it's something uh, I guess a a constant theme of our, our podcast is kind of, you never don't stick to one kind of either tribe or, you know, paradigm or lens or anything like that is do what's best for the patient. And let's say if you are a clinician out there, that's kind of maybe stuck to one pattern or style or anything like that. And your patients are either patients are dropping off or they're probably there a lot longer than they need to be. Um, you know, we encourage you to, you know, you know, test out some other things, learn some other techniques, you know, receive mentorship. Sometimes that's the best thing is having another set of eyes who has a different, I guess, lens than you. So you can test out some other things and maybe that'll open up things for you and optimally give your patients the best results. But um, yeah. any, anything else you want to talk about in regards to like.
1: No, I think. Or... I think that's a you know some of the bigger things in movement. Oh, I guess posture. Um uh, just to real quick to wrap up with posture. I know that's always been uh I, at least it was force fed in my PT school. I think it's posture like I, I had I don't know how many classes on posture I had. It was way too many. It's not that big of a deal. Should you get
0: the plumb line, dude?
1: Oh my god, yeah. Oh, plumb line um, master over what, here. what's the saying? The, the best posture is the next posture.
0: Yep, yep, yep. What does it mean? It means
1: yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, let's keep it real simple. I, you know, don't try and overcorrect one way or another. Your body should be exposed to multiple movements, multiple planes. When we don't, when you're stuck in a most likely a seated position with a hunched back and rounded shoulders for 18 hours a day, yeah, you're probably going to run into some issues. Yeah, well, if you're able to move and stuff, you're, you're probably going to be okay, or at least better off than someone else.
0: Yeah, I would say uh, a little spice is nice you know, just you know, mix it up a little bit. And um, yeah, again, if it comes down, like you have a patient and, you know, they have shoulder and neck pain and all of a sudden you put them in uh, or their chin talk or maybe scapular attraction and it makes their symptoms better. Great. Great. You made it better for them. But I wouldn't go back. Listen, this is this is exactly what you need to do for the rest of your life. Don't lose this posture. And we need you to do this for you know your 10 hour workday. You know, just kinda explain to them that yeah, this is this may help you, this may alleviate symptoms for the time being. But you know, we are creatures of movement, so keep moving. The best positions, the next position, and uh, you know, it's something that, you know, it's constantly evolving and those sort of things. But yeah, I thought that was good. And um yeah, if you don't have anything left else to talk about, was maybe something we can re explore, maybe we need another episode. I'm sure there's a lot of other movements so and maybe we can get some viewers to Kind of chime in about some other techniques or moves that uh, they've seen kind of go one way or the other, and chat about it, but yeah, yeah. If there's nothing else, I guess we'll wrap things up um, You can feel free again to reach out to us if you either agree or disagree with us and our kind of our viewpoints or anything like that, or looking to receive some mentorship or you know bounce some questions off of us. we're really open. <laughs> Um, we'll talk about our handles, Brandon's at think like a fellow and at pursue PT. Now, uh, we're both at Menips and Sips, um, and I'm at the decent doctor and at Trifecta Therapeutics. Um, so yeah, feel free to reach out to us and, uh, thanks for listening in and, uh, cheers everyone. Cheers.